Hey, welcome to the Metal Attacking Show. My name is Kieran, and this week I talk about the Equinox 800. We have our regular tech timeout, and of course, some news from the world of metal detecting and treasure hunting. So let's get on with the show. Hey, I want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to listen to my little podcast. Hopefully I am improving every week, but if you want to interact with the show, and I hope you do, please reach out to me on Twitter at DetectingDe, or Instagram at the Metal Detecting Podcast, or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. Okay. Here's my Equinox 800 review. Firstly, this is not a paid endorsement of the Equinox 800. The unit I'm reviewing I purchased myself about 18 months ago. If you'd listened to my previous episodes, you will see a pattern emerging where I am reviewing my own equipment, and this will continue for a bit. I have quite the collection. Okay, back to the review. My initial thoughts, the Equinox 800, is that it is an expensive machine, but why does it look like a low-end Chinese beginner knockoff? But more on that later. So the Equinox was released in September 2017 by MineLab in an effort to loosen the grip the XP Deus had on this price point and performance. Utilising MineLab's multi-IQ multi-frequency technology, the plan was to deliver an all-out performance machine at the lower than £1,000 price point. On release, there was significant buzz around the XP Deus losing its crown and performance prints and crowd favourite status. However, MyLab's gain was short-lived with a swage of what has now become documented as the known issues. For example, the shaft issues, where wobble would be induced over time and the shaft was slowly filled with sand, with the only option to replace the cheap MyLab shaft with an aftermarket lighter carbon shaft. Several other issues emerged and are evident with the Equinox 800. For example, the cuff is huge and what looks to be made of ABS and what you would expect from a cheaper beginner model. And although the headphones deliver results in sound quality, it is clear to see that these are some off-market rebranded set of airport Bluetooth headphones. You know the ones I mean, the set of headphones you buy at the airport for about 30 bucks just to get you over this trip because you don't want to be bringing your high-end Bose set in case you lose them. Other issues reported is that the main processing unit can flood if used underwater, even above the rated 10 meters depth, resulting in MineLab replacing several units well within warranty. I myself have never had this issue simply because I never use the Equinox submerged in the sea or river. Despite these known issues, there are many pros as there are cons. So going through the pros. Firstly, the Equinox is light. This is light, weighing in at just under three pounds, even with the stock shaft. But if you have the carbon aftermarket shaft, this lightweight detector can be even lighter, up to 40% lighter. It's powerful and versatile. No matter which way you look at this, the strength of all mine lab detectors is in the quality of technology and software that goes into the detectors, and the Equinox is no different. Highly versatile, fully programmable, and powerful ensures this detector is top of class. Battery life. The battery is rated to last on full charge for 10 to 12 hours depending on usage and is more than long enough for me with easy charging via USB. Screen protector. This is a small thing but remembering the levels I went to to get a screen protector for my CTX3030 I was pleasantly surprised to see language specific screen protectors included with this detector. 
and now the cons. It looks cheap. It reminds me of a quick draw to my first detector which I loved but I was very surprised to see the quality of the shaft below what I come to expect from my lab. The WM-08 extra module to connect to generic headphones, same as the CTX. This is a pet peeve of mine. Why can't they just add the functionality to connect to generic Bluetooth headphones without the fuss of having to carry around this extra module? I know they will state there is a need because most Bluetooth headphones do not have the same response due to lag in the Bluetooth protocol, but it has never held me back. Maybe it is to do with how fast I swing my coil. Speaking of coils, no aftermarket coils from the likes of Coiltech. Only available options are the stock 6 inch, 11 inch and 15 inch DD Smart coils. Enough said, my lab are still clinging to the proprietary coil model, but I'm hopeful, just like the CTX, that at some stage Coiltech will release a coil model. And finally, it's not a beginner machine. Just like the Quattro and CTX I have owned previously, there is a steep learning curve to be climbed with when learning the Equinox 800. So my overall opinion, despite all the known issues and cons, I still love this machine. Would I recommend it for a beginner? Absolutely not. Was I disappointed by the physical quality of the machine? Absolutely. Would I recommend it? Yes. If you are like me and focus mainly on beaches, then this is the detector for you. I have yet to use an anger on an open field so it wouldn't be right for me to comment here. Did this knock the crown off the dais? Maybe. Only time will tell. The XP dais had similar problems when it arrived but what can I tell you when the clinching factor for me is the MineLab aftercare service. As with any of my MineLab detectors, I and they hold their customer service as the gold standard in metal detecting. So yes, the Knox 800 gets a thumbs up for me. Yeehaw! Time for a tick timeout! <laughs> this week's tech timeout is getting permission or how to influence somebody who doesn't want to be influenced. Getting permission is one of the fundamental things every metal detectorist has to be good at to be successful at metal detecting. What is the goal when asking for permission? The ultimate goal is to have written documentation signed by you and the landowner granting permission to you to detect on their on the landowner's land, ensuring you both agree to share the value of any find and indemnify the landowner of any liability resulting in your presence on the property. So this is the goal, but how do you get there? Firstly, you personalize the message. All too often I hear of metal detectors printing off tens of copies of the standard permission document that several websites have available for download, attaching a generic cover letter and sending or dropping to all landowners in their locality. This is the equivalent of spam and will be as successful as spam at about 1-2%. So let's do the maths. You are a fairly active metal detectorist and you can probably cover tens of acres in a year but you have no permissions or have no personal relationships built up. So for you to get the required amount of permissions, you need to do the following based on the spam method. Let's say you need two farmers to give permission, which equals two successful responses, which also equals 2%. So you need to send out 100 letters to get just two permissions. That's a lot of work, time and money to have such a low return on effort. Also, there's no guarantee that the land is actually of good quality for metal detecting either. We talk about targeting particular landowners later. 
So this example is based on you starting from zero in an area where you know no one. So this is an extreme example, but in reality, you will know someone in the area or you will live close by, which allows you to cater your message to become more personal. For example, Hey Farmer Joe, my name is Kieran and I live in the local town. You may know my sister Joan who worked with you last year, some, at last year's Summer Vintage Car Festival, etc, etc, etc. So straight away you've established a personal message and relationship which will be more likely to get a good response but still only approximately 7-10%. to 10%. So how do you personalise a message with someone you don't know? Well that's the point. You will only be consistently successful in requesting permission if you have established some form of relationship with the landowner prior to requesting permission. Using the previous example, it would be impossible to form relationships with all 100 landowners in your area. So you have to be targeted. And this is where research comes in. Research your locality to identify which lands you think you will be successful metal detecting on. You find out who owns this land either by asking down the local pub, bar or church or if you must go to the land registry and pay the small fee. So now you have shortened your list to possibly 10 landowners which if you use the previous spam method to get permission will result in all likelihood a negative result. However, you have increased by a magnitude of approximately 10 the chances of a successful hunt because you know this land is good based on your own research if you could only get permission. So how do you form a relationship with a stranger or several strangers? There is countless numbers of books and courses online that can help you if this is something you struggle with, but it can be something as simple as striking up a conversation down the local shop, saying hi every time you see them. What I would do is just focus on getting permission from one or two landowners. Maybe they drink in your local pub or go to your local church, but get familiar with them. This sounds altogether very stalky, and I suppose it is, but this is a very slow and steady method. If you have time, get involved in a local project or club. The landowner doesn't have to be part of it, but it's very likely some person from their family or circle of friends will be involved. What you're trying to do here is build familiarity with the landowner. The more you can do this, the more successful you will be. I'll give you two examples and you can tell me which will be more successful. Example 1. You start a new job and on the first day you meet someone you like. Someone you would like to know more and go out on a date with, and maybe more. You are super confident and go straight up and without saying hello, you try to kiss them, or as we say in Ireland, lob the gob. This may be successful in one of a hundred attempts, but you will have to kiss a lot of frogs to find a keeper. Example 2. Same scenario, but instead of trying to kiss them for the first time, you spend some time getting to know them and them to know you, and whether they or you are actually worth the time. And then, if they think they might like you and you like them, then you can lob the gob. You will be more successful in example 2, but you won't kiss as many frogs. So example two is the way to go. You build familiarity and can deliver a personal message with the confidence you will be somewhat successful. You have built up a relationship with the landowner, however small it is. So what do you do now? How do you form a message that will be successful? Your request either in letter form or in conversation should contain the following points if you can. First point, focus on problem solving. You highlight the fact that if permission is given, there will always be a second pair of eyes keeping watch over the land or if the landowner needs help with something, there will be a second pair of hands should they need it. 
provide social proof. If you have permission from one landowner, it is very easy to get permission from another. It will almost act as a reference, so absolutely mention any connections you have to provide a reference. Make it an easy decision to make. Ensure to mention that you are fully covered with public liability insurance and will not damage any property outside of digging holes which will be filled immediately and untraceable after a few days. Understand crop rotations if needed and specify what times of the year you would like to hunt. And finally, do not pressure for an answer but check in regularly. Ask the questions either by mail or face to face but leave it hang there. Don't expect an answer straight away and let the landowner know this too. Tell them you will come back to him in a few days and do. But don't make it easy for them to say no over the phone. If you can reach out to them for follow-up face-to-face, do so because it is very hard to say no to you when you're fluttering your eyelashes at them. If they still need time, give it to them, but let it lie if they put you off a third time. They are not ready to say yes to you. All this means is not right now, so you need to build more trust with the landowner and go back to working on establishing and building on your personal relationship with the landowner. So what do you do when you get permission and how do you maintain it? This is super important because once you land one permission, you have social proof to expand to other permissions. Adhere to the rules of the countryside. Always keep gates closed. Let the landowner know if you have seen anything untoward on their land. So treat your permissions as you would treat a VIP. Show them your fines. Let them know when you're on their land. Give them an opportunity to pick what they want from the fines found on their land. Make sure to give the mandatory yearly gift. A bottle of booze should be good enough. If you find something that may be important to the providence of the land, it might be nice to mount a frame and present it to them. So that's it for this week's time out. But to recap, when asking for permission, first, research where you want to detect and who owns the land. Establish a personal relationship. Provide social proof. Make it an easy decision to make. And finally, do not pressure, but check in regularly. And remember... Once you have permission to maintain it like you would maintain a relationship with a VIP. On to the news from the world of metal detecting. A story in Forbes this week. The headline reads, YouTube restoration videos preserving or destroying history. The contributor, Peter Susio, discusses whether vehicle restoration is okay whether World War II relics should be restored. He goes on to call out YouTube channels, Adventure Archaeology and World War II Metal Detecting, who only have a total of 20,000 subscribers between them. I fail to understand how two channels with only 20,000 subscribers are the harbingers of doom for found relics. I believe the contributor's main issue is he would prefer that these objects would not be restored and kept the patina of age from where they are found. Please read the story. Links are in the show notes. My opinion is based on what a museum would do. They would fully restore it, if they can, for all to share the history. More on this next week when we discuss cleaning finds during our tech timeout. And finally, local news from theday.com. A day for detecting at Rocky Neck State Park in East Lyme. By Dana Jensen, who recounts a short conversation with Dave Gannon, who was using his detector at low tide on the east side of Rocky Neck. Check out the full story and with all our stories this week, the links are in the show notes.
Okay, I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. Follow us on Twitter at DetectingDe or Instagram at the Metal Detecting Podcast. If you want to contribute or have suggestions for topics to cover, pop us an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. Don't forget to check out our website, www.TheMetalDetectingShow.com, for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will catch you all again next week. Happy hunting, everybody. Happy hunting, everybody.